fellow time travelers, and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the enormous task of discussing in story order all of the Doctor Who novelizations. My name is Tony Whit, and today we again have our three-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979, that would be me. There's also our intermediate-level casual fan who has seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books, and this time it's none other than Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello, hello. Hello. And finally, we have the novice fan who has seen little to none of the original series and previously read none of the books, and this time it is the wonderful and glamorous Jenny Ingersoll. Hello, Jenny. Greetings. All right. Today... We're looking at the first published novelization of the third Doctor Who story, Doctor Who and the Edge of Destruction. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who and the Edge of Destruction, written by Nigel Robinson and adapted from the story written by David Whitaker that aired from 2864 to 21564, published by Target Books in 1988. As of this recording in January of 2017, this title is currently out of print, but available as an unabridged audiobook by BBC Audio, 120 pages. Alrighty. Before we get rolling, I actually have a couple stories to tell. Uh, one of them is about Nigel Robinson, and one of them is about the story that we're uh, reading the novelization of, The Edge of Destruction. And this first one is uh, a little embarrassing, so bear with me. <laughs> uh, back when I was a precocious pre-teenage Doctor Who fan and wannabe writer, I wanted a shot at novelizing some of the stories that had not been novelized by that point, and at that point there were quite a few of them. So I did what any normal 13-year-old kid would do. I wrote to Target Books, and I offered my services as a writer. And did you really? I really did. <laughs> <laughs> and I, of course, got a rejection letter. But from it was a very kindly written one, and it was you could tell from reading it that it wasn't a form letter, that it was actually written by the then editor of the range. He'd actually gone to the trouble of, well, probably dictating a reply and then having a secretary type it up, because it made specific references to things I'd said in my letter about my uh, disappointment, for instance, that Douglas Adams had never adapted any of his own books, uh, stories, I should say. <laughs> And it very kindly told me that while my offer of becoming a novelizer was appreciated, the then practice was to offer the original writer a chance at writing the novelization, and that barring that, it would be he or one of the other staff writers who would then take on the job. But to this day, it was, it's the sweetest and most heartfelt rejection letter I think I've ever gotten, and that letter was written by none other than Nigel Robinson. Oh, oh my gosh! Cool. Yes, he was the editor of the uh, Target Range at the time, all the way up into until 1988, which is part of the reason why he uh, did this one and a few other novelizations. By the time they got around to novelizing the story, they couldn't offer it to David Whittaker because he died in 1980. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So a little bit of a problem getting the original writer to do it there. Normally, their fallback would have had, would have been to have Terence Dix write the book, but I guess he didn't want to be bothered with it because it was only a two-part story. So it's <laughs> Nigel Robinson who adapted this weird little story. I'd always heard that the reason that this story was written was that Whitaker, who was the script editor at the time, wrote it because Marco Polo was delayed. 
And the, mm. yeah, the reason given for that was that the sets were so expensive and elaborate for Marco Polo that the production team needed a two-part story to fill in a gap that would be necessary to get all those sets ready. Wikipedia disagrees. Wikipedia says it was written to fill up a 13-episode run, though you think they'd already planned that ahead of time, if that were the reason. Yeah. But at any rate, David Whitaker wrote this story, the script for this story, in two days. Wow. Yeah. Oh. Which is pretty insane. Yeah. I'm sorry, Dalton, you were going to say? No, I I guess I was just going to say, like, you can kind of feel that. Like, it feels, it doesn't feel rushed, but it feels, you feel like a sense of urgency. Yeah, yeah. There's there's definitely that. You can if if you ever watch the original televised story, you'll see it. They don't introduce any new sets, and in fact, the one big thing in the story that they introduce the uh, fast return switch is written on the TARDIS console in felt tip pen. <laughs> ah. Yeah. So it's 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 kind of ridiculous, but uh, that's the one sign that you have in the story that they were doing this uh, whole story on the cheap. I have a feeling that Nigel Robinson had longer to write the novelization. In fact, there's definite evidence of that. But here's the ironic thing. All seven episodes of Marco Polo? Missing. We no longer have them. We only have audio. Yes, we only have audio because uh, BBC erased all of the master tapes. And we have um, off-air telesnaps. But that's all we have. We do have both episodes of Edge of Destruction, though. That was never Hmm. erased, so that's the irony of the whole thing. But as I'll say when we get to the Marco Polo podcast, probably the best thing that came out of Marco Polo is Edge of Destruction. Hmm. But we'll go into that in more detail soon. Okay, first impressions. What were you two expecting out of this book? Jenny, let's, uh, let's start with you. You know, I don't know very much at all about the Doctor Who universe. I think I have as much contact as any layperson does that, you know, you see coffee mug shaped like little blue telephone boxes <laughs> and there's some sort of Doctor Who themed coffee shop that opened down our street for a while called Bad Wolf. Uh, really? I, I had, yes. Why did I um, not know about this? Well, <laughs> I, it, it's gone now, sadly, or it, it changed hands. It had delicious pastry, but I, I didn't have much at all. Um, I've seen maybe casually one episode. Um, admittedly, I, I wasn't the biggest fan. Um, I, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that you uh, are, here absolutely. on this, this podcast. So I was curious. I, I didn't know what, what to expect really at all. I came in with, with a lot of eyes open. Right. And as a reader of, of fiction and I guess past writer of fiction and attender of a master in fine arts program of questionable, I guess, quality and or significance. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I, I suppose I have some, some merit in assessing the narrative functionality of, of a story. Yes, so I, exactly. I have that coming yeah. in. Um, <laughs> totally. And, <laughs> and it's, you know, it was a fun read. I wasn't, I think, carried along by it as, as much as I would have been. And I don't, I will be courting an, another podcast about the Marco Polo episode, which I felt compelled to be comparing it to because I, I read them not that far apart from each right, other. Right, exactly. Um, and 
that one was a little bit more favorably impressive. I don't know if I can start talking about that or in any sense. Um, uh, not quite yet, but uh, yeah, interesting you should say um, that. Interesting you should say that. But that was an impression I had. Okay. All right. How, uh, Dalton, how about you? Um, I really liked it. I Having having seen all of the new series, well, the uh, 2005 was the reboot. Right. Having seen all of the series except the most recent one, and reading reading the book, it felt like something that I could see on TV now. It felt like I, I can't specifically remember episodes, but I feel like there have been lots of episodes in current series that were very much like high, very intense, highly intense, like um, suspenseful, very much like disorienting in a way. Mm-hmm. So I I really liked that, and I yeah I just enjoyed it. It was a, it was a very quick read. I just like woke up one Sunday morning and just read it in two hours. Just like breezed wow. through it. Um, <laughs> oh yeah, it was absolutely a quick yeah. read. So I, I really enjoyed it though. And it's interesting that you should say that it's um, something that could have been done for the new series because there's not one but two episodes that kind of directly call back to this one. There's an episode in the very first season of the reboot series called Boomtown. And that has to do with the power that's underneath the central console of the TARDIS. And on the DVD release of that story, they talked directly about the Edge of Destruction and how that was an inspiration for that particular story. Mm -hmm. And then there's also Matt Smith's story, and I can't remember which season it is or which story it is, but they delve directly into the heart of the TARDIS, and uh, you get to see some of these rooms that are somewhat described by Nigel Robinson. Now, I, I... Obviously, they're not as ornate no. as he makes them out to be. But, uh, yeah, there's there's definitely a lot going on that's going to uh, resonate later in the new series. So neither of you had read the first two books. So I wondered how you felt about that prologue, which essentially brings you and the readers up to speed. Uh, was it necessary? Did it set the scene effectively for what followed? You know, I... <laughs> Again, not knowing what to expect, I wasn't sure how to treat the prologue even as a part of the narrative. Um, mm. You know, I'm reading it and I'm like, wait, is this... Like, I, I realized once I got done with it, I said, oh, okay, this is supposed to kind of set me up for the adventures of this particular crew of the ship. Um, right. But beginning it, I wasn't sure. I was like, wait, this is going so fast. Like, they just skipped over two different adventures that these people currently had. And right. now we're here. And later, too, you know, when these things are going on with the ship and the doctor makes a comment like, oh, the ship is dying or this energy is trying to escape. I actually wish that the prologue had gone a little further in, I don't know, somehow setting up how the ship works or how I could, right. as a complete layman, expect the the ship to be operating. Because I wasn't sure how to take those events. Like when someone's like, oh, the ship is dying, I sensed that the uh -huh. narrative wanted me to be upset about that. But I was right. just kind of like, I don't know how upset to be about this. <laughs> oh, that's true. Because at that point, you wouldn't know that that's basically their home. And it's the only way that they have to travel through time and space. So I guess the stakes would be lower without any sense of those first two stories. Yeah. Or just if, like, the ship is supposed to be alive or not? I wasn't sure. Oh, yeah. Okay, I could see that. Uh, Dalton, what about you? Um, I was kind of... I was a little confused with it, because I was like, wait, this is the second story, but it's telling me how they, they met them again? Or I couldn't tell, like... 
what what its purpose really served. I was like, okay, mm. this is the second story, but he's going back and telling. Well, third well, story, yeah, third, third story, story, I guess. Um, but then yeah. going back and like telling me how they met, and I was like, That's, yeah, it seems yeah. kind of superfluous. Um, but well, there's actually a really good but kind of confusing reason why that happens. Um, <laughs> um, because people who have read these books and also uh, listeners to the podcast who hopefully by now we'll have gone back and listened to our first and second episodes, which are available on soundcloud.com. Sorry, I had to put that in there. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, exactly. We'll already know this, but the very first story was not the first story that was ever novelized. The second story, the Daleks, was the very first one to ever be novelized, and that was in 1964. Okay. Hmm. And then An Unearthly Child... The first story wasn't novelized until 1981. And the problem there is that the first writer, uh, David Whitaker, who ironically is the original author of Edge of Destruction, basically had to write a standalone novel. And he had to write the Daleks novel as if fans, or the readers of the book rather, would not have seen the show, even though they obviously had, would never read any of the other books because there weren't any at that point. So that's the first time that we get a story in which we're told how the Doctor and Susan meet Ian and Barbara. Okay. Then An Unearthly Child tells the actual televised story of how they all met. <laughs> mm -hmm. So the problem there is that you've got these two stories that are basically vying for position as the very first meeting of the Doctor, Susan, Ian, and Barbara. So the prologue at the beginning of The Edge of Destruction is trying to recap those first two stories and saying, I hope you weren't confused if you read mm. these in order, because, okay. yeah. Okay. And unfortunately, it sounds like it may have confused you two because you hadn't read those two books. And that's and I was wondering if that would happen. That's exactly why I asked the question because unless you're a fan of the show, that prologue, well, it is kind of the weirdest little synopsis of two stories. In fact, it seems to get one fact wrong. It says something about Barbara almost being left behind on the planet of the Daleks yeah. and mm -hmm. if any of our listeners uh, will message me on Facebook and tell me what that's about, because I did try to do the research. I couldn't figure out what the hell he was talking about. But it's there in the uh, prologue, so, yeah. Does she not get left on this planet in the other book? Oh, no. No, no, oh. no. In fact, as I recall, because I had to, you know, rewatch these stories as well as read the novels before doing this, there's nothing in the story or in the novelization to even suggest it. So I'm not quite sure what Robinson's getting at there. Hmm. So maybe I missed something. I don't know. But, uh, yeah. It, it does give some needed context for what's coming because that prologue does set up the tension. Because this book is about nothing if it's not about tension. Yeah. I was going to say, the only reason that I could see if it truly is something that was fabricated for the prologue and didn't happen in the other story, and I mean, I not to question your research skills, you probably researched it correctly, um, is to have leverage against Barbara since she's kind of one of the main pivots of conflict in the narrative. Yes, and I think that might be it. I think it might be maybe Nigel Robinson introducing a point of conflict that didn't happen in an early story so that she has more motivation for being for feeling the way she does during the story because yeah. 
she has she has enough already. The doctor ill treats her terribly, even in the televised story. Hmm. It may also be Robinson just using the extra time that he's got. These stories, these books rather, tended to have a fairly hard maximum page count limit of 120 pages. By the time Robinson was writing them, they'd actually gone up to 140. Hmm. Okay. So rather. Rather than having to shoehorn four or six or even eight episodes worth of story into a tight little 120 pages, he actually has to expand a two-parter to fit that length. I see. Yeah, there's a great deal here that wasn't in the televised version, but we'll definitely get to that. A few other things. The cover. What do you think of the cover? (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm kind of fond of it in like a... I kind of like weird kind of retro looks. Okay. What uh, what part was retro to um, you? The title, definitely at the top. The slant of the Doctor and the sheen of the Who with that feather red like glow. Oh, the logo. Yeah, the logo. Yeah. I like that. And then just the... I like the simplicity of the bottom where it just has the control panel, the Doctor, and some like wall. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's it's very much just like simple. I like it though. <laughs> okay. How about you, Jenny? Yeah, I was a big fan of it right away. I was like, oh yeah, this is as Dalton you were saying, the slanted doctor and the the chrome who very uh like heavy metal that that animated movie. I don't know if you're familiar familiar with um very heavy metal yeah. and of course oh. you know the the doctor kind of mischievously looking to the kind of the right and fading, you know, up from the other art, uh, just kind of reminds me of all the, the yellowed paperbacks that I was picking up from public libraries in the early nineties. Totally a fan. Totally a fan. All right. I, I, I'm probably the only one here then that doesn't like the logo mainly because I've never liked the logo. That's the logo that was used, uh, from I think 87 till the end of the series. In hmm. fact, I sometimes think that it's the logo that ended the series. <laughs> but, uh, it's, it was the what first... did you like about it? Oh, God. Well, I guess you have to see it in context, because there's a reason why the logo is on that black background and the rest of it's white, and there's that chopping off hard line. It's because uh, it's the first time that the series ever used computer-generated graphics for the opening sequence. Yeah. Hmm. And so that logo is computer-generated. Okay. And there was no way for them to actually do... I guess there was no way for them to actually do a typeface. Until later, of course, they figured it out. But by then, the series was over. And so they had to, I guess, Photoshop that logo in from the title sequence and then do the artwork underneath. So all of these uh, novelizations from about 1987 onward have that weird split. And that's... I, I, uh, it's just weird seeing that logo for that later era of Doctor Who on such an early story. That being said, I love the the painting. I, 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 I'm assuming it's Andrew Skilleter. He would have done a lot of the paintings at this point, but he's not credited. So I'm not really sure. But I can uh, see what you mean. And it's also worth mentioning that, I don't know if this is the case for all of us, but seeing this as a PDF... Mm-hmm. Um, that effect of it being choppy, I think, would be much more apparent if we were seeing it on the cover of an actual yeah. book. 
Oh, yeah. Um, whereas when it's on the screen, I kind of forgot about that. I was just like, oh, this is, you know, I didn't even think about how that would look. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, I could see that. And yeah, just so our listeners know, the panelists generally get PDF copies of the books. I'm looking at a print copy right in front of me, which I will, of course, post a picture of to our Facebook page so you can see it as well but yeah there is a definite hard line between those two and i'm sure our listeners are like enough about the cover already let's talk about the book (laughs) so let's talk about the book let's first get some general stuff out of the way what what was your favorite scene or your favorite line uh jenny let's start with you um i had to i'm looking over my notes i had to think about this i think that I finally liked when the conflict was established sort of for sure. Like all of a sudden, you know, we're thrown into this maelstrom of, oh, there's been some sort of explosion. And right away too, the way that it's, it's set up where Barbara still thinks that she's in the school. Right. And I was like, wait a minute, what's going on? Like I, I didn't, cause again, I, I don't have a lot of knowledge about this. So I'm like, <laughs> well, I'm pretty sure that the TARDIS is like a time machine, but what's going on with, like, how can they be in these two places at once? But then it was like, oh, okay, fine. This is just kind of in her head. Um, but then later, and this was on, on page 26, like, finally we got around to this conflict of, oh, it's Barbara and Ian versus the Doctor and Susan, that they've never been quite treated as equals, and this is what's going on. And I, I even kind of jotted down, I'm like, oh, okay, here's a conflict. Well, you know, I bet by the end of this, if this book follows anything that I know, probably they will be equals by the end. And they are, so that was nice. (laughs) Okay, so you were able to see some foreshadowing going on there. Yes. All right. Uh, I really like the scene with Ian when he was, uh, he got separated from the doctor and he was going through the ship and it basically just talking about all the artwork and things that had gathered over time um, Mm -hmm. and how that, that kind of was like a, I don't know. It kind of it kind of laid out time in this linear way on the ship, and I really just like that imagery, the idea of that. Um, and then later, how it kind of explained how the ship was leading him back to the doctor—that was really cool. Because while reading it, it felt very foreboding, and it felt very like, "Oh crap, what's going to happen? Uh, I don't like this." But mm-hmm. yeah, later it just kind of explains everything. And it's like, "Oh, that's really cool." <laughs> Yeah, exactly. In fact, one of the um, interesting things about the story is that if you're watching the televised version, it very comes it comes across very much like a haunted house kind of story. Yeah. And of course, there's the possibility of demonic possession. There's some poltergeist activity, which, by the way, is not in the televised version. Hmm. But that sequence that Dalton's talking about, where uh, Ian is separated from the Doctor and then guided by the TARDIS back to him... That's not the televised version. Hmm. That's one of the bits that uh, Nigel Robinson actually expanded upon. So I'm, I'm interested that uh, you like that part because it really is kind of made whole cloth for the story. That there's some little sequence where the Doctor and Ian are checking figures and readings on the console. But they don't go any deeper into the TARDIS to... Uh, look for problems so hmm. yeah that's that's a favorite sequence of mine too it it adds a lot more about what day-to-day life would be like in the tardis yeah. is, is the part then where he gets stuck in the room and is like dying of lack of oxygen is that in the televised version no not oh. at all yeah 
Do you think that it was put in as a way to kind of give Ian a little more character? Uh, does he end up being more kind of like uh, the Doctor's... I mean, they are, of course, the Doctor's companions, but does he become more, like, curious, uh, like Rory is? Uh, or is he, you know... I feel like, does he become more curious? So him kind of having these little side quests, I guess, in a way? <laughs> does that become something... Yeah, in fact, everything that both Ian and Barbara do in this story, even in the new material, is completely in keeping with their characters. Okay. So that, that makes, makes sense. sense. Yeah, it really does. And I think um, having Ian be the one who, because he's a science teacher, so of course he's going to go off and uh, get himself into some trouble. And yeah. I also suspect that Robinson does that deliberately so that there's more reason for Ian to be tense with the doctor and just as Barbara has reason to be tense with Susan later on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think that may be what's happening there. Let me ask you, who would you say is the most well-drawn character in this book? Hmm. I think... Assuming you thought they were well-drawn to begin with. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, yeah, um, I guess I appreciated Barbara the most. Um, okay. She seemed yeah. to be the one to be able to keep her head the most to, you know, take in logically things that were, were going on. Or, in, you know, as as case that she said, well, maybe it's something that's not logical. Maybe something else that we need to, to think about. And yes. that everyone else seemed to, you know, be getting into a tizzy. And I, I felt that I wish that they had gone into this, that originally she's the one who woke up first. In some way, she seems to be the one who is the most impervious to whatever was going on. Um, right. And yet yeah. they trusted her the least. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because she woke up first. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I liked her the most as well. I really liked, um, there's the part where she's talking to the doctor and I think Susan, um, and she basically is saying, like, hey, we're all in this together. We're all trying to figure this out. You guys are looking at us with just as much confusion and worry and suspicion as we would you. But in the end, we're all in this. So, like, yeah, she really was the one that was trying to think of it logically. And in the end, illogically, she was the one that was trying to just figure it out and help them all as opposed to being someone that was selfish. Right. Exactly. And she, I, I think she really comes off a lot better in this than she has previously in the novelizations, because the first one in Unearthly <clears throat> Child, it, it seems like Terrence Dix doesn't really like her much, because even when he describes her, he says she'd be a lot prettier if she smiled. And it's like, oh, God, dude, uh, you never want to say that about a woman or anyone. I mean, that's, that's yeah, awful. that's just condescending so yeah, yeah. well in Whereas, the uh, in marco polo too it's like she takes a back seat all the women do all they do is cook and then run off and get in trouble and i was like shoot yes. you know i i liked barbara of this quite a lot she's very forward she takes care of herself um i'm glad she didn't open that door and get blasted by ions or whatever it was um <laughs> Yeah. Which also doesn't happen in the televised version, by the way. Oh, so weird, because these are, I think, the, the nicest points of tension in the narrative. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I would agree. You know, uh, everything that Robinson adds to this is really just good quality. He's very good at giving us character moments that not only forward the narrative, but also seem to be true to what these characters are like. But 
Yeah, I, in fact, let me f see if I can find it in my notes here. I think I even said something along the lines of, I, I love Robinson's version of Barbara. I really do. Because she gets that, especially towards the end, she gets that lovely long speech in which she says, Why are you... Oh, where's the speech? It's on, it's on page... It's on page 60 in our texts. It's 73 in the original book. The longer speech that when she's reading the Doctor of the Riot Act about yeah. accusing them, she says, what about all that we just went through on Scarrow against the Daleks? Not just for us, but for you and Susan too. And all because you tricked us into going down to the Dalek city in the first place. Accuse us. You ought to go down on your hands and knees and thank us. But oh no, gratitude is the last thing you'll ever have. You think you're so superior. And it just goes mm -hmm. on and I'm like, yes. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. And you get that lovely bit of uh, the doctor's reaction. The doctor seemed visibly shaken by Barbara's a fierce tirade and for once seemed at a loss for words which isn't quite the way he reacts in the televised version but it's the way he should be reacting mm -hmm. yeah but yeah she's a she's a lot lot stronger in this speaking more about barbara uh some other character touches you liked about her anything that stood out to you nothing that i can really remember i just remember her being just like really strong really outspoken very empathetic you know she she really was trying to understand the other people and their situations mm -hmm. so yeah i liked that mm -hmm. i yeah, think she, uh... oh yeah sorry There's... go ahead the the apology that she she asks for from the doctor is actually twofold. Um, right. That, you know, first he's like, oh, I, I owe you this apology. And he apologizes about the current situation. That, oh, you were right about what was going on with the ship. And I'm sorry about that. But then she's like, eh, you know, says Barbara regarded the doctor. The look in her eyes told him that his apology wasn't enough. Uh and she asks for more than that. It's not. And this is where I felt um, like, oh, good. This is coming back to my prediction about what the conflict would be in this story. That it's not even necessarily what's going on with the ship. It's the deeper conflict between the doctor and Susan and Ian and Barbara not being treated as equals. And right. she's asking for that part of the piece that finally, mm -hmm. OK, yeah, I saved you in this situation. So now you give us the respect that we deserve. And I'm like, OK, good. The narrative is closed. Things are as they should be. <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting that you should point that out because the you said it was twofold, the apology. That's because in the televised version, it happens in two separate scenes. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> the, the original apology ends with the doctor saying, we owe you our lives. And Barbara tries to say something and she chokes up and runs out of the console room because she's so overwhelmed. And there's this feeling of, oh, okay, this is going to take a little more than just the one apology. Mm. And you get that apology at the very end of the story in which they have another really sweet scene, just the Doctor and Barbara, in which he says, I understand why you're upset with me. It's the injustice of the way you were treated. And I, I'm sorry about that. We really need, we all need each other now and we can't do without you. Is it normal for the doctor to be such an asshole? Like I <laughs> uh, these early stories, yes. <laughs> okay, because I was like, this this person is just incorrigible the entire time. Um and oh, I didn't yeah. know how I don't know, normal that was or how that was going to, to, to be or continue. 
Well, this is um, it, this is going to be. Um, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Dalton. I was going to say it. it have, yeah, having seen all of the new series, it, it still happens. Even <laughs> even 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 later iterations. After he's, I mean, he's so much older and so much more experienced. There are times when he's he basically comes off as a just a huge jerk, and a lot of times it's it ends up being justified, and it ends up being him being clever and witty and complicated and ultimately trying to be righteous and do what's right. So yeah, sometimes it comes off as, as just so, so flagrantly like, what are you doing? But then, uh, but yeah, sometimes it ends up being fully explained and it just makes it more worth it. And it, totally expands on his character so yeah yeah. and i I get that you know to me it's sort of like a a sherlock thing or it's like okay yeah we we can accept how he's being because he does have this intelligence and you know every every so often he does throw watson a bone um i think that i accepted it more in the marco polo story than i did this one um yeah we will we'll get to that in that episode (laughs) of course yeah. Yeah. So stay yeah. tuned, listeners. That is coming up. But um, interesting that you should mention uh, Sherlock, Jenny, because the producer and creator <coughs> of Sherlock, uh, Stephen Moffat, is the current showrunner of Doctor Who. Oh, really? Yes. And his newest, the newest actor to play Doctor Who, uh, Peter Capaldi, is basically Hartnell all over again, but even more of an asshole. <laughs> to use the term yeah and uh it's almost as if all those intervening hundreds actually at this point thousands of years that he's been alive just never happened and he's learned nothing because he is definitely that brusque and abrasive and but in these early stories yeah just to give everybody a recap in the very first story when barbara and ian follow susan home the doctor basically kidnaps them rather than letting them loose to tell other people about his existence. Mm. When they go to the planet of the Daleks, he makes up a fault with the ship so that they have to go down into the city of the Daleks and thereby endangers all of their lives because it turns out that the planet is radioactive. Or in the uh, case of the book, it's, there's air pollution. And almost gets them killed by the Daleks because they're, you know, just bad. Uh, And then he pulls all this stuff in this story. And everything that Robinson adds that's new of the Doctor, especially the internal thought processes that we get, all that external, internal exposition, is just lovely because you get some of the justification for their behavior that you don't get on screen. Mm. Yeah. I loved it every time we would flash to the doctor and he would think something along the lines of, you know, maybe I should apologize to her, but she's saying I'm wrong about this. I'm never wrong about anything. It's like, (laughs) oh, yeah, yeah, you you poor sap. Of course you are. (laughs) Of course you are, especially when it comes to this stuff. Uh, What else struck you in this novelization? Let's see. Mm. In specific anything good I, I also see here that you have a question about um was something we haven't talked about was anything that didn't work for us about this novelization yes yes please um i'm curious from your perspective dalton what did you think uh, something that didn't work yes something that didn't work the the whole scissor scene with susan <laughs> kind of conf- confused uh. me 
Yeah, let's talk about that, shall um, we? <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Um, I guess I just felt like, as I was reading it, it felt very much out of character, and it was never really explained, and it was... I didn't feel like it was explained anyway. I felt I felt like it it was like was she having a nightmare? Was she really attacking him? Was she that suspicious? Was she like trying to protect herself? What was the deal? Like mm-hmm. Yeah. Jenny, I don't what do you know. think? I I agree and then later on she kind of does the same thing with Barbara like she still has it down there and it it's sort of I mean I I kind of like it because at that time it's still sowing these seeds of suspicion and tension in the reader's mind of like what's going on is it a ghost is it uh, something from the outside are these people being possessed you know something it reminded me of is john carpenter's the thing um yeah and yeah. although i mean it really comes from from much earlier but that that particular movie and the kind of claustrophobia the enclosed spaces the are we who we really think we are um sort of thing so with those notes, I liked it. But you're right, Dolan. It never gets explained later. And in fact, the moment that you said that, I was like, oh, yeah, that's true. It never gets explained. Yeah. yeah. And come to think of it, it's the only time that Susan ever uses a weapon. And here's the interesting thing about that. I have a story about that. Um, that scene got the producers in trouble. Because the original remit of Doctor Who was that it was a children's series, um. and it was meant to be an educational series. <laughs> so they would alternate episodes that had a historical focus with episodes that had a scientific focus. Hmm. Because, <laughs> and you'd think that the, the script editor of the damn series would know this, but I think this is one of the few missteps that David Whitaker ever made. He decided, well, there are scissors that... Um, Barbara uses at one point in one of the other stories. We might as well have them there. And she does brandish them at Ian in the televised version. And then she stabs the bed repeatedly. And I I get where you're coming from, Dalton, because it never really explains why she's doing that or if she's just that suspicious. I think we're meant to think that she's just that suspicious, uh, suspicious. And she's out of her head somewhat because the TARDIS is affecting she and the Doctor much more than Ian and Barbara, which makes sense because they're alien and um, Ian and Barbara aren't. So maybe that's it. But it got them in trouble. Uh, The producer got her uh, fingers wrapped over that. (laughs) She was told by the upper, upper echelons, you cannot in a children's series have a main character menace somebody else with scissors or stab anything because the kids at home will see this and say oh let's try this at home when we're play acting this episode (laughs) and luckily that didn't happen but it was uh one of the first times that the show was ever you know did something controversial that callback that jenny you were talking about when she does it again with barbara Mm. that's not really in the televised version okay and I think it's a lovely, again, a lovely little character note for Barbara because she, when she tells her to put down the scissors and she imagines herself talking to one of her students, which, of course, Susan is a former student of hers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and it's a, a nice little character note going on there. Other things that didn't, well, actually, I want to bring up something that I think maybe might have been confusing. Mm. The explanation of what's going on. Do you mean just in terms of what's going on with the ship? Yeah. How clear was that for the two of you from what was on the page? Well, 
I felt from the beginning, and I'm going to refer to my text here, actually, that I think from even <laughs> the back of the... Yeah, from, from the back of this novel, you know, it, it says, like, what has happened to the TARDIS? Um, I, I sort of get the point already that I'm like, okay, well, something is going on with the ship itself. Like, the ship is, is going haywire for some reason. And so through the story, I kind of had that expectation. And I was sort of wondering why the heck it took so long, like, for everyone to figure that out. That, like, right. I, at some point, I, I can't remember when I had this idea, but I definitely throughout most of the story was like, well, the ship is doing this for itself. And especially, I think when it was starting to send them kind of signals or opening and closing of the doors, I didn't think that that was just a ghost. I thought, no, the ship is deliberately leading them around for some reason. Um, you right. know, maybe, maybe benign, maybe not benign at this point. I don't know. Um, so I knew that, but I was like, why is it taking them so long to figure this out? I don't know. Right. And I think yeah. it's because it's so early on in the series and they have no idea that the TARDIS is anything but a machine. Mm. This is the first indication that it has any sort of sentience, something that's really going to be developed later on. Uh, Dalton, I cut you off. What were you about to say? No, I was going to say, yeah, I noticed that too. Like in the beginning with the the doors opening and, you know, they go towards them and they close, it was very much like, oh, the ship's doing something. And having watched the series, like knowing that the ship is alive and that the ship does do things and protects them and has all of these, you know, gadgets and whistles and all this kind of stuff. Um, being just like, oh, yeah, okay. And then they don't ever really come back to that. They automatically think it's something else. Yeah. It's something else. It's something else. And it's like, but, but, but guys, like, the ship is telling you. Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. But like you're saying, like they're they're not as familiar with it. So looking at it as some the doctor and the stuff that I have seen, the stuff that I'm familiar with, the doctor's been with the TARDIS for so long. He he still doesn't know everything that it does and that it can do, but he understands it a lot better. Mm-hmm. So wow. yeah, looking at it from the that perspective of like, oh, this is still relatively new to him. This is an extremely sophisticated piece of technology that he doesn't really know how to work. He's, right. I, I mean, he, like, when you watch the show, a lot of times they just kind of, as he's controlling it, he's just, like, running around and, like, hitting buttons and flipping switches. And, like, <laughs> it, it's it's kind of uh, comical. And it's like, how's the, how does this thing work? But that's kind of the point. It's like, mm-hmm. it, he, he doesn't really know. Yeah, I love the fact that in one of those later episodes of the new series, we discover, as was established in uh, one of the Virgin books, the original novels that were published in the 90s when the show was off the air, the Detardis is meant to be piloted by six people. Hmm. Oh. Which is why the console is shaped that way. Yeah. Each person has their own console, and uh, the Doctor actually ends up help using his companions in that later story to uh, pilot the TARDIS, and probably the only time it's ever been piloted correctly in the entire time the Doctor's <laughs> ever had it. Yeah. But... It's it's weird, because the explanation of what's happening to the TARDIS in Chapter 9, to me anyway, is still kind of unclear. The full explanation is here, unlike in the televised version where Hartnell is said to have left portions of it out, <laughs> which would really be confusing. Yeah, he forgot his lines. He tended to do that. Because it's such a strange one. The fast return switch gets stuck... 
and they the go TARDIS back to can... the beginning of time, right? Like they go back no. to the Big Bang. No, no. that's that's the. Im- in fact, Ian asks that, and the Doctor says, "No, we would not be able to survive that." Okay. And in fact, in the original story, the implication is that's what's happened. In the novelized version, it's explicitly shown that it isn't, and that's because in the 1981 story Legopolis, that's not Legopolis, Castrovalva, that is what happens to the TARDIS. Okay. okay. It does go back to it does go back to the Big Bang and it almost doesn't survive. And it's not because of the fast return switch. So I think that's Nigel Robinson very uh, cleverly putting that in there. Um in fact before we get any further that whole bit about the uh, the bell tolling. Yeah. 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 Um, the bell that rings in that chapter to announce the imminent destruction of the TARDIS, it wouldn't have been familiar to re- viewers in 1964 because they weren't hearing it. They were hearing some other strange sound effect. But that reference would make plenty of sense to readers in 1988 because also in 1981, it was established that the TARDIS has a cloister. And the bell, the cloister bell, sounds whenever the ship is in imminent danger. Oh. Okay. So N- Nigel Robinson doesn't name it as such here, but that's obviously what it is. And he even has Barbara think of that John Donne uh, quotation, ask not for whom mm-hmm. the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, which is another reason why I adore Barbara in this book. It's just <laughs> brilliant. She's the one who figures it out, even with that weird explanation that it's stuck they're going backwards in time to the formation of not all of the universe but a galaxy Mm -hmm. and it's telling them it's in danger by various clues so they can fix the fault and get underway before it's destroyed i think (laughs) so it's a little still a bit odd yeah i was like really like like that's really all that happened. It to me very much it's like the and then I woke up kind of ending. It's like so you push the yeah. button and I love his explanation of like, oh the fault locator couldn't find that it was a fault because it's not a fault, it was just stuck. I'm like, since when is something being stuck not a fault? I I yeah. also would have thought that the fault locator I mean, unless the whole ship was just trying to have fun with the crew and maybe strangle Ian from lack of oxygen is actually like going to tell them, hey guys, this is actually a fault, please don't die. You know, but instead well, it wants to engage in this like circuitous, you know, thing of, of clangings and breathings and whatnot. Um, well, interesting you should say that though, because if you think about it, I don't know if you've ever seen or read um, the, uh, the Andromeda Strain by Michael Crichton. No. Something mm-hmm. similar happens in the movie. I don't know if it happens in the book, but it happens in the movie that they're supposed to get some sort of warning about something and a piece of paper gets stuck between the bell and the clapper that's supposed to let them know. And it's purely a physical fault. It's not a technical fault, and it's something that if there had been a fault locator uh, you know, attached to this bit of machinery, it would not have caught it. So it's interesting that even Michael Crichton 
uh, was willing to do something like that. But it does have that sense of, oh, come on, really? Well, yeah, because that that's like an ironic, you know, Romeo and Juliet-esque, like, oh, the message got lost. The messenger was crossing paths with, with Romeo. Like, that That I can buy. This, I'm like, why wouldn't he have just seen that the button was stuck? I don't... <laughs> and, you know, maybe this is underlined as... as um. Dalton, you were saying by the fact that I, I don't know that much about this narrative and the, the conventions of it, that the doctor is supposed to be, while he claims to be, um, you know, knowing so much about the ship, he's actually kind of a, a bumbling fool. Um, yeah. <laughs> and that this is just part of the conventions of the whole, you know, narrative arc of all of these, that it's some kind of pompous person uh, claiming that they know everything that's going on and really not knowing a damn about it. Right, and uh, Dalton will already know this, but <clears throat> it's later established that the Doctor and Susan, when they um, left their planet, actually stole the ship. Oh. Yeah. And it was in the repair bay, <clears throat> so it's not in the best of uh, function, and it's old. It's basically the Doctor, uh, I think I've said this before in our first episode, that uh, the Doctor's basically driving a Ford T-model. Yeah, so this is like the regular <laughs> Millennium Falcon of the <laughs> the Doctor Who universe. Yes. Okay. Exactly. Got it. Yeah, it comes down to that. It's precisely it. The explanation here is still a little odd. It's still a little strange. And yet, it still kind of carries me along because there's so much added to this from the televised version. I know I've been saying that a lot tonight, but, for instance, um, on page 65 in your PDF, uh, page 78, for those of you reading at home, um, Susan talks about the difficulties the Doctor's been through because she's trying to justify to Barbara why the Doctor acts the way he does. Mm -hmm. And she says, even old friends have turned against him in the past. And most fans are going to read that as a reference to the Master, mm. who is another uh, renegade Time Lord, old friend of the Doctor, who ends up becoming his mortal enemy. Frenemy. Frenemy, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Who's now the mistress, so it's also yes. a trans enemy, which is just hilarious to me. I love that character. But that character won't be introduced on screen for another seven years. Oh. So Robinson is saying, yeah, I know this about the show. Even calling that central column the Time Rotor, it yeah. wouldn't be called the Time Rotor until 1981. So it's like, oh, this is great. It adds so much to it. But uh, yeah, that's it just makes me squee every time <laughs> I see little things like that. And I think what I appreciate most when I get to these uh, Hartnell stories that were novelized later in the show's history is that they do interwork that sort of thing to let you know that there's a history behind the show that they may not have been aware of at the time they were writing the story, but the writers are sure aware of it now. Mm. It works out really well, I think. In fact, uh, let me just say, I think the story is easier to read in some ways than it is to watch it, because the televised version has the characters acting out of character and you don't know the characters all that well to begin with, but it also doesn't give any sort of internal justification, as is given in the book. Okay. Like, yeah. chapter, chapter 5, for instance, uh, gives us Barbara's reaction to Susan using her first name for the first time, which is an odd one because it may not actually be correct. Uh, listeners, anyone willing to do the research that we won't do on that one? 
Let us know on our Facebook page <laughs> if this is indeed the first time Susan calls for Barbara, because I'm almost certain it's not. But in the books it is, hmm. technically. But that subsequent dialogue between them about how alien they are to each other is just a lovely bit of character development, and I think it's something that Robinson does really well with a book like this. The epilogue and the conclusion. What do you two think of the those parts of the book? The epilogue is basically where you get the uh, first half of the apology. Right. Yeah. And then the conclusion is where you get the... Uh, is is base is the lead into Marco Polo. At least it's supposed to be. <laughs> ah. yeah, yeah, I because, was I was curious about that. Yeah. In fact we'll have to talk about that, that in the next episode because it's very obviously not a seamless transition in any way, shape, yeah, or form. No, definitely not. Mm-mm. Um yeah. yeah, I suppose there is an air of okay, we've put the conflict of us being strangers, you know, all of them being strangers behind us, and now we're going to proceed with these adventures in a more unified way, which you absolutely do see in in the Marco Polo. I don't Marco see Polo. any trace of tension between Barbara and Ian and the Doctor and Susan at that point, which right. is sort of nice because then it allows the the narratives to unfold in other areas. Dalton, how about you? Yeah, I really, I, I feel that like it. It really feels like they. This, this, like you said, is kind of like a character study. It really is kind of like, who are these four people and how are they going to interact with each other? And this kind of like shows that everything they've gone through, including coming to this like point of no return, you could die. Um, they get through it and uh, now they can just kind of like move on with things. So yeah, mm-hmm. it really is just kind of like nice to see that. Nice to have that kind of break in a way. Yeah. This seems like more introspective, and then Marco Polo is super extroverted, introspective, and it's extroverted. It's very much um, this one, like it's it's internal. It's a lot of thinking. It's a lot of what's going on in people's heads. Yeah, this is and very then, character driven, whereas the other story is very plot driven. Exactly. Oh, I agree. Exactly. And in fact. <laughs> What I find interesting is that it's almost as if Nigel Robinson intends this book to be a standalone in the same way that the first two novelizations could be. Yeah. Yeah, because the the first novelization actually does lead directly into the Daleks, which is going to be confusing for anybody reading the Daleks after it because you get a whole huge, big new introduction. <laughs> and it's all told from Ian's first-person point of view as if he's made up the story just to make himself look better. And then you get Edge of Destruction, and you get that prologue that tells you just what you need to know about those previous stories and nothing more, and then does not tell you where they are, where they've landed, just that they are in a much better place, and that things are going to be better for all four of them from here on out, which is basically the way things proceed from this point onward. So that that makes some sense. Mm. Yeah, That definitely makes some sense. In that case, let's uh, let's talk, as we always do, we're going to go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers, then follow those up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and you want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book, simply read the book, 
write a review of it on goodreads.com, and then write a comment on our Facebook page so that we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves. You may just get your review read out loud here. All right, the average rating for Edge of Destruction on goodreads.com is 3.53 out of 5 stars. And here are some sample reviews. Uh, Nicholas Smith writes, This is one of the forgotten treasures of early Doctor Who and reads more like a pincher play than a sequel to the first Alex story. Huh, pincher, good God. Um, <laughs> the, the option for the series to stop here and focus on both character exploration and development is a bold choice, but a very welcome one. This claustrophobic tale really brings out the alien nature of the Doctor, Susan, and the TARDIS, and the writing style is sparse but effective. I'm working my way slowly through all the books. Yeah, so are we. And I have to say that if others match the quality of this one, it will be a very pleasant journey. Highly recommended. Five stars. Interesting he says that, too, because some critics of the story have compared it to Luigi Pirandello's Six Characters in Search of an Author. Have either of you ever read that no. one? No, not yeah. familiar. It kind of does read very much like a stage play where you've got six characters and they're trapped and they don't know what's going on. It's, it's definitely got that feel to it. Hmm. Uh, Donovan writes, It's not Nigel Robinson's fault that the original two episodes penned by David Whitaker were so strange. This story was novelized for completeness, I suppose. It's a very weak story to begin with. But Robinson does a few interesting things, and his version does improve the original. My favorite part of this book was the opening introduction and prologue, where we get more about the life at Coal Hill School. Uh, for example, Mrs. Johnson trying to track down Susan's birth certificate. What I didn't like about the story was that Robinson padded the story out so that it would fill the target format. The padding consisted of more wandering in corridors, which isn't terribly dramatic. Three stars. <laughs> Which I guess is fair if you don't like wandering in corridors. There's a lot more of it in this version. If you and don't finally, have an active imagination. Yes, exactly. Oh, that's a little unfair. Donovan, he didn't mean that. I'm sure he did that. <laughs> All right. Nicholas White gives us the minority opinion when he writes, Robinson has taken a two-part story and padded it out with some interesting new material of Ian and Barbara exploring the depths of the TARDIS. Unfortunately, Robinson's own prose style is thunderously bad in places for completists only no rating given <laughs> thunderously bad ladies and gentlemen Nigel Robinson who was kind to me when I was 15 years old in his rejection letter writes in a thunderously bad way you know, I'm not going to say that it's thunderously bad but I will say that the kindness he gave to you in that rejection letter doesn't have to be related to his skill as a prose writer because I, um, you know, there's a phrase that my my uh, advisor in my MFA program used um, to talk about Stephen King, actually. And let it be known that I love Stephen King. I think Stephen King yes. is yes. a wonderful storyteller. But as a, a writer, you know, my my mentor says, you know, he's he has working men's prose. It's it's working men's. Like, it's not, you know, something that you're going to necessarily sit there and chew on for your entire life and get a myriad of right. flavors out of. It just kind of gets the job done. And I, I, I think that that's the case. And it especially came out to me more so when I jumped over to Marco Polo and felt, okay, wow, um, this, I, I don't know if I'm going to pronounce it correctly, but John Lucarati. John Lucarati. Lucarati, yeah. here's a person who I think I could sit down and read for a while. Hmm. That was my impression. 
Okay. Yeah. How many uh, how many stars out of five would you give this, Jane? <laughs> Me? Oh God. Um, <laughs> I don't know, but uh, like two out of five. <laughs> really? <laughs> Solid B minus movie. Okay. I don't know. Oh wow! Goodness. Okay, uh, Dalton. How about you? Um, I, I'm You're... like three point seven five, leaning towards towards a four. Um, okay. Just just because I um. I just really enjoyed reading it. Like I said, I read it very quickly. Um, I just kind of got into it. Um, so yeah, I, just, I really liked it. Um, it was like you say, it's like working man's prose. It's kind of clunky. It's kind of just like da 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 da. But I enjoyed it. It was it was pretty straightforward. Like once it got going, it it helped it it uh, kept my interest. And yeah, like we've said, it had it had some good character development, it had some good things to think about, even mm-hmm. even if it was um, you know intense. Um, so yeah, I just I really enjoyed it. Okay, and I'll I'll be honest, I I kind of do have a bias towards Nigel Robinson, even though I will admit that thing about his pro style being thunderously bad. I. <laughs> There are some other novelizations of his that I'm not a fan of, and his one original novel for the 90s series, which was uh, Time Worm Apocalypse, painful. I hated that book. (laughs) I absolutely hated that book. I'm sorry, Mr. Robinson, I really am. But I hated it. This one I do not hate. Um, This one I would absolutely give a 4 out of 5. It's not what I would consider one of the best Doctor Who novelizations, because it's not quite on the level of, say, the Daleks. It's not quite on the level of the cave monsters or various other things that we'll be reading later in the series, but it's good. It's really quite good. And if the aim of a novelization is to improve upon the televised story, then I think that mark is definitely hit. Of course, that may be uh, an arbitrary benchmark for me to be putting in front of any of the novelizations. If it's just to tell the story, it does that too, but this one actually improves no, on No, I so think that definitely... that's valid. I mean, and it surprises me all the things you're saying about the the places in, you know, just as a narrative, taking away the quality of the prose, that the places in the narrative that I thought, okay, good, we're getting this now, that they weren't in the show, because then I'm kind of sitting here thinking, uh-huh. like, dear God, what was happening in the show? Like, I don't... <laughs> what was what was the show? What constituted the show? So on that well, uh, virtue, I think you're absolutely right, Tony. Well, one of these days, Jenny, and you're invited to this, Dalton, we'll have to sit down with a bottle of wine and watch those two episodes together, because um, now that you've read the book, I'd be very interested to see what you think of the uh, televised yeah. story. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's a great story. I like it. I, I do like it, no matter how many people think it's weird, but then that's just me. <laughs> All right, so thanks, guys, for being part of this podcast. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time yet again. Next time we'll be reading Doctor Who and Marco Polo, or is it simply Doctor Who dash Marco Polo, Doctor Who, Marco Polo versus, I don't know. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook. If you add a comment on that page, if you think there's something we missed here, or you just want to tell us you like us in, you know, words, 
you'll be entered in our third Target Book Giveaway. This time, some lucky fan randomly picked by me will get a gently used copy of Doctor Who and the War Games. Ooh. Yes, exactly. It's exciting. Check our Facebook page at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. All one word with no spaces for more details. Also, feel free to give us a thumbs up on YouTube. Follow us on Twitter. We're at DWTargetBC. Or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice. If you really like us, or if you really, really don't like us, post your comments, suggestions, questions on any or all of the above platforms, or email us at dwtargetbc at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening, and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye! Bye.